Hi, Sarah Hepler. Hi, Nancy Rommelman. In your summer dress. Yeah, the least amount of clothing possible since uh, since summer has arrived in New York City and, and everybody knows how just, just beautifully intemperate it is at that when that happens. Do you feel objectified that whenever we start this, I'm almost inevitably talking about how you look that day? Not at all. I, I don't mind. You know, it's funny you said that because I just read an article, and we'll get into this a little later. I'm going to um, San Francisco on Thursday. Today's Monday. We're recording Monday morning. I Sorry, Tuesday. Sorry, the holiday Memorial Day messed me up on Thursday. And um, there was a big, big, long, 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 long feature on Chesa Boudin. I'm trying to remember. He's the DA that's being recalled. I can't remember which magazine it was in. Um, I think it was an old New York Magazine article. And I don't know, third, fourth, fifth graph. Um, the writer mentioned that he was, um, you know, had a scraggly beard on an enormous jaw and he was kind of a muscular guy. And then he kind of went into like, maybe why, like Chesa Boudin was a surfer. He surfed before dawn, which mm. I thought was pretty cool. Mm. Anyway, I was, yeah, it was kind of crazy because anyway, I went into the comments just to see what people thought. And one person was like, I don't understand why you said like what what he looked like. Exactly. Like that that I was going to read, but I stopped reading after that. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what, lady? It's an eight thousand word article, <laughs> and maybe you just kind of want to know what the guy looks like. You know, so sort of like when I worked at Salon, I was often getting dinged in the comment section for describing interview subjects. Uh, appearance when I first introduced them. You know, this is actually what I believe is good writing, which sure. is that when you introduce a character, you give a short description of what they look like. And just so the the reader at home can visualize. Now, you know, it depends on if there's a photo that's going with it and yada, yada, yada. Um, I, I went a little hard on this with a couple of female... Uh, interview subjects and yeah I was I was getting people were hot under the collar for my focus on women's attractiveness or or you know because often I was saying they were very pretty um you know it's interesting I grew up in Dallas and it's so looks oriented and the I but I also just ah, you know screw it I just think we're just we're visual creatures oh I love Listen, I mean, when you when you pop up on my Zencaster like a magic beautiful fairy that is like cool Gwen (laughs) Stefani. The first thing I think is, you know, because you wear a different thing every time. I wear the same damn house dress every time. You you know, I was looking at your dress because I'm in a little sleeveless dress now. And I was like, I think I've seen that dress. Yeah, you've seen it every time. Okay. Because this is like my Jeff Goldblum in in the fly suit. It's a yellow little house dress that I wear every single day until I leave the house. Well, I, I and had then I change into regular people clothes, but I'm I, not dressing up for you, Nancy Rommelman. That's the difference between us. I keep it chill. I, I did have one of those dresses that I would sort of wear, but this weekend over Memorial Day weekend, I was away up in the country and and sort of, I'm not exactly through acts unknown, it got shredded. It looked like a bear had gotten to it. So I will not be wearing that one anymore. Um, how did you, did you do anything sort of, um, did any, did you honor um, the people who, who we've lost, who fought for this country this weekend at all? I, I'm saying this completely seriously. I'm not, I'm not trying to make this no. sound like a... a um, I had an interesting weekend and I have interesting thoughts on Memorial Day, you know, which is a military holiday. 
I did not in the past my brother and I my brother is a is a navy guy and he's a captain in the naval reserves we've done what's called the wounded warrior walk mm-hmm. It's very powerful. You walk down here in Dallas, you walk down the Katy Trail. There's pictures of people that you have lost in combat. More recently, I've been thinking about Memorial Day and wishing that it were a little less tied to military tradition and a little bit more Day of the Dead-ish. I mean, all the people that have died in all the conflicts as opposed to just Exactly, in the sense of like a day to honor people that you have lost. I lost a dear friend this year um, from college. And, you know, I spent some time thinking about him yesterday. I think about him quite a bit because I only learned about the death about a month or two ago. And, um, you know, there are different other people that have died. So, but, you know, my proximity to military loss, it's just, it's, I don't have it. So we went, we were up uh, upstate <clears throat> and then we were in the little town of like Milan and they had a little town hall. It was literally a town hall um, Memorial Day parade. And the parade, it started with a a um, a horse, a riderless horse. And then you had, um, you know, the bagpipers. And then you had some really old, gorgeous old cars that were great. And then they had like some Civil War reenactive guys who like shot muskets, the actual muskets that they were packed mm. with the powder. And they had... Um, some speeches, and I have to say, it was very, it was very calm. It was a beautiful day, and I was glad to be there. It's not, it's not a way I usually, I'm usually not in a small town uh, on Memorial Day, but um, I enjoyed it. And I have, I, uh, my uncle was a Vietnam vet who lost mm. both his legs um, up to the hip because mm. he was like 19 years old. He was a Marine. And he, there was a radio, a transistor radio sitting on a stump and he picked it up and it was a, it was, uh, it was a weapon and it, it went off and he had a real, he, he died a few months ago and he had a really, really, really rough life. But that's, that's a conversation for another, another day maybe. But I, I did, they did ask something interesting at the little Memorial Day, um, town hall event. And, um, it was a service member and he said, how many of you have lost someone, you know? in combat? And my answer was zero. Zero. Um, That has to do, obviously, with where that grew up, sort of, you know, sort of this more like, I don't know, urban, you know, I knew people, obviously, that joined the service, but not whole cloth, not like like my ex's family would have, where like, you know, half the guys went to the, to the military. Well, we missed the, the draft and then the Vietnam era Uh, and grew up in a time of relative peace. And the military is increasingly a volunteer organization that is occupied primarily by the working class, non-college kids. My brother's an anomaly having, you know, like a grad degree from Columbia and being a, a captain in, in the military. I would say in the past two or three years, um, through journalism, through Twitter, through personal connections, I have a I have a good number of friends um, who served. Um, all guys except for one gal. And uh, I'm 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 glad for that because that it just shows you you're opening up your world, which is which Oh, is for nice, sure. So I think the I think Memorial Day is so untethered from its original you know, kind of like philosophical idea. I love that you went to this event. I think most people just experience it as a day off from work to get loaded and barbecue. Well, yeah. 
Yeah. Celebrate um, your freedom. I also could not do it because I could not do the Wounded Warrior Walk because I have a, I've not even told you this, I have a smoke em if you got them injury. Oh, Sarah, it wasn't me. I wasn't no. even there. I know. I know you weren't, but kind of were. <laughs> okay. Friday, Friday morning. As I walked down my crooked staircase to go outside so that I could smoke while I listened to our podcast before I, so I got the notes together. Sure. It was dark and I slid in my flip-flops and I slid down two steps and I caught myself and I was like, yes, I did it. I didn't fall on my ass. But the impact of that was so great. And my right knee is already screwed up that I, after sitting down for an hour, could not move i mean like <clears throat> i was bed bound oh sarah all i guess this was saturday actually all saturday and the good news was i, I got to watch the ricky gervais stand up goodfellas and i started watching the Depp herd trial again like the masochist i am like i started at the beginning but um but the bad news was i was your narrator was laid up all day. I'm now, I'm now fine. I'm sorry. What is the, what's the acronym? Rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation. That's what you're supposed to do for I missed the E. Like I did Rick. Okay. <laughs> Sarah. Um, so Sarah, let's, uh, let's actually start with that because I watched the Ricky Gervais um, special last night when I got back from being upstate. What, what are your thoughts on it? Super nature is the name Super of nature. it. It's on Netflix an hour it's long fast i've never been a huge fan of ricky gervais's stand-up i've always thought he was much better as a sort of creative force the office is obviously genius i really liked the show afterlife i have not been a, yeah like i haven't really mm, loved his stand-up but i watched it anyway um because it's become quite controversial gotta say i found the first 20 minutes i laughed several times like I, you know, like whether I liked it or not, because there's something interesting that happens with this kind of comedy, right? Because it's very provocative comedy that's going to push a lot of buttons. There are times when you're thinking like, ah, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But the litmus test, and this is why comedy is so beautiful, is not whether you think it's wrong. It's whether you laugh. Yeah. You because laughter is the tell. But don't you think there are probably people that tell themselves not to laugh? Yeah, of course. You can try. <laughs> and, you know, you can go on Twitter and say this is an outrage and an abomination and this is not funny. But I was watching it and I laughed. I laughed a, a number of times. And I also think one of the things to Gervais's credit, he's always been um, a bit of a philosopher, a bit of a a bit of a deep thinker. I loved his podcast in 2005. It was the first podcast I ever listened to. Um, it, 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 he did it with Stephen Merchant, his creative partner. It was wonderful. And, you know, the way that he could stretch out ideas and, and he was really quite funny there. Cause I think he's one of these people that's just better spontaneously than he is maybe in, in, in written standup. But there were moments when I thought, you know, that is just a really good Point. I mean, one of the points that he makes is, you know, you cannot predict what you're going to be canceled for in the future because you don't know what the dominant mob will be. That was that was actually pretty funny. What was he? What was the example he gave? Like, um, 
women don't have penises was women. not a, a controversial comment 10 years ago. And now <laughs> he's like, like, who saw wow. that one coming? Yeah, that was actually pretty funny. And I, I did laugh at the opening. I have to admit, I thought it was good. It was really, it was really fast. Like, you know, he's, he's like, this is irony. Just the way he was doing it, it was rolling upside. I will admit a couple of things. Number one, I do not think of myself as a sort of um, prissy or prim person at all. But I did, um, I, I did find the number of bunghole jokes. I was starting to get a little squeamish, personally. I know it's absolutely ridiculous. And then I Why also, are you so anti-bunghole? I'm not anti-bunghole. You are. You're an anti-bunghole, and I'm putting it on Twitter later today. I'm not. I just, I don't know. I get a little Yeah, that's squeamish. stuff silly. I don't, I mean, there was squeamy. a lot of stuff I didn't think was funny. It's also, boy, that's boy comedy. That's my picture. To be you know, gender essentialist about it. My 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 joke when I was like a kid, like a teenager, I made up. It's not really a joke, but I was like, "What's the difference between men and women? Men like the Three Stooges." Like, yeah, I that's never, it though. I never it liked is. this. Like, oh, slap, slap, slap. What? What is Hate funny it. about this? It's Hate not funny. It. <laughs> but um, the other thing is that you know, we all of us who have been sort of living through the wokeitudinal decade or however long it's been going on, like there's something wokeitudinal like, decade. I'm I mean, sorry, I just have to enjoy that for a second. <laughs> I, you're just like someone thinks you're like, wait, what? What are you getting crazy about? Like, what? It's just like it's so absurd, but it's also very, very um. You can get super angry at some of this stuff. It's like, how don't burn that person down for just like doing nothing, basically. So, yes, and we all in our work, um, you know, we've had to make certain decisions in our work, like how we address things in the culture, because we write about the culture, we podcast about the culture. And I just decided a long time ago that I'm observing this stuff. Sure, I'm going to have comments about it, but I'm also curious about it. I'm curious about the other side. And I also don't want to be like, wear my anger on my sleeve. And you know we have a lot of people that do this and they'll tell you, I had a discussion with one of the smartest journalists I know at a dinner about a year ago. And I was like, I understand that people who are like big journalists and they want to like, they want to go at this stuff head on, fight, 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 fight. And we've got it on both sides, obviously. And I was like, I just don't, I, first of all, I don't want to do that. Second of all, I don't think I'd be very good at it. It's like, I'd rather just like speak to it in other ways. And she said, Nancy, you have an obligation to fight it head on. And I thought, well, I don't actually, I, I have the obligation to do the best job that I can. In any case, sometimes you see people and their anger just seems a little like, raw at this stuff like dave Chappelle, never like dave Chappelle, he can do anything as far as i'm concerned he's so funny i mean there might be some things i don't like i don't know but what i've watched of his specials the past couple mm -hmm. years i'm like yeah i roll with that gervais just a little bit to me seemed like it was a little bit even though it was in good jokes there was a little bit was a tiny bit of like anger on his sleeve yeah i agree with that and i also just thought like a lot of it was not in my lane. It's just like, I lost interest after the first 15 minutes. I started kind of checking out and I didn't love, um, you know, it was just a little like adolescent. Some of it was a little adolescent for me. I liked, um, him talking about the idea of this, this law that's been laid down in comedy, you know, this idea that you can never punch down. This is such an interesting <laughs> that idea that, uh, I, I, it's come to be accepted wisdom, but it was just sort of like not, not something anybody ever 
thought of or contemplated or whatever in comedy until the last, as you say, 10 years of our of Wokistan or wherever. And, you know, this was something that was first floated to me by a, a feminist writer that was writing for me at Salon. And she wanted to make a critique of the, the TV show Glee. And, you know, she said, you're, you're not allowed to punch down. And I was like, well, I'm thinking to myself, like, who who said so? Uh, you, you know, wh- why can you not punch down? And what does punching down even mean? Glee And was, who decides? Who decides? Yeah, Glee was a, it's hard to remember now. It was a very popular show at the time that was considered itself sort of an equal opportunity offender. Um, it was mostly beloved by drama nerds. And uh, I mean, I'm just going to repeat myself by saying women and gay people. And, um, <laughs> you know... <laughs> It, it it of all the things to sort of critique. What do you? Why you? Why you nitpicking Glee for God's sake? Which actually made drama nerds momentarily kind of cool. Thank you very much. But anyway, th- this was I I tra- I didn't I didn't have her write this idea. But then I saw it sort of like 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 populate the RSS feeds was this, you know, over the next years was just like, you can never punch down. And so Gervais has a line that, you know, you can never punch down, but sometimes you have to punch down. Like if you're punching a disabled toddler. Uh, and that, I'm sorry, that was funny. He's like, you know, he's he's mimicking it. He's like, and you know, you, the audience, who are smart, can understand I'm not really punching a disabled toddler. Now, if I dragged a disabled toddler out here and started punching him, you know, you would have reason to feel uh, umbrage. Um, yeah. Anyway, I I I'm I'm glad I watched it, but anyway. There there are a couple of things I wanted to say before we leave that subject. You know, um, you know, I think Gervais does come from the equal opportunity offender idea of comedy, which is this idea that, you know, there are no sacred cows. That's the beauty of comedy. This idea that there's a power structure that can only punch down below you. Who who decides who where who is where um, that this is not something he's going to sign up for. Um, He has a you know that the most controversial part of his of his special is about the trans community. Um, he says they want to be treated no differently. I agree. That's why I include them. That's right. Um, because he said, look, this was sort of toward like the two thirds mark. He's like, so what have I made fun of here? I've made fun of like Holocaust victims, women, disabled children, the Jews, the AIDS patients. Like he's like, and trans people. Like it's all, it's not the, the, the anyway. Correct. Um, Connor Friedersdorf, who we've spoken about before, writer for The Atlantic, tweeted something that I found fascinating. Uh, the head that the, the sort of tweet was the decoupling of critic and audience scores is something to behold. Then he posted a oh. screenshot from the Rotten Tomatoes reviews of this podcast. Audiences, 92 percent fresh. Critics, 14 percent. Okay, this is amazing. This is amazing to show you where our chattering class is. Okay, that's yeah. number one. Number two, we also know how people use these rating systems, whether it's Rotten Tomatoes or whether it's Yelp. Um, I'll give you an example on Yelp. So a friend of mine had a, um, um, a coffee shop in Portland. And it was kind of a long story that something happened and this and that. And her, all of a sudden, her beloved coffee shop Mm. had, you know, had 301 or zero star reviews. And Yelp actually instituted a policy that um, 
when that started happening, when they could see that like within a 24-hour period, you've got, you know, 100 one-star reviews, they would stop it because they could see it was a cabal. It was like, let's set out to destroy this person. Well, I think when you're saying this on Rotten Tomatoes, the same thing happened with Dave Chappelle. I mean, people are going bananas and all the Netflix employees were going to leave and everything. And the audience is like, hey, we're cool. We really like this. Well, of course, please, please give the audience what they want, right? Do not give them what either A, some particular activist class of folks, whoever they are, decides that you're not allowed to do what you do, and then whatever the chattering class of critics. Let the audience decide, because they're probably outnumbering those people, what, 5,000 to one? So I'm glad to see that Rotten Tomatoes um, kind of kind of balanced it out. Well, I think we're seeing a very similar discrepancy in the Depp Heard situation because, for instance, the legacy media continues to kind of support Amber Heard, ask the question of why the internet has turned on Amber Heard, say, why aren't we believing Amber Heard? And the mass, the overwhelming mass of the public is pulling for Johnny Depp in this. Uh, and then what you have again, it, it's it's really it's really kind of gross. It's like, well, you know, they don't know any better. This this the masses just don't know any better. We know better than they know. It's like, excuse me, who? Why in the world? Just because you have a job at the New York Times or wherever you're at Jezebel, do you know better than John that sit, sits in his apartment in Okmulgee, Oklahoma? Why is your opinion of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? I mean, maybe you've studied it. Sure, you're a journalist. You've done I'm some sorry, research. I'm sorry, but one but, of the keep going. But one of the keep going. But let me interrupt you. My no, God, go ahead. Sarah. No, go go do it. One do of it. the things that I noticed by studying Twitter is that no, it's really Joe Schmo and Okanagan, wherever the hell Okmulgee. He, you know, the it's the masses that have actually spent the time watching this trial. It's the people writing for these publications that have not. I do not see legacy media doing deep dives on this story in the way that I see people on YouTube and Twitter doing it. Now, you could argue <clears throat> that they're hopelessly biased or, you know, that 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 the slant is um uh, you know, to build followers or what I, I could make all sorts of critiques of that. But I will tell you that the most granular coverage of this is being done by your average person who, by the way, has time to watch an eight hour trial for six weeks, while somebody else that's working at a legacy media place might have 10 other things they've got to do that week and is probably only watching videos on TikTok. One of the very interesting things I see in the legacy media coverage is that they will usually deride the viral coverage as shallow, uh, you know, disgusting, whatever, while betraying the fact that that's usually where they got most of their information. It's also like, it's, oh, it's this, we know better. We know better where the culture needs to go. You know, if Amber Heard loses, then it's just another sign that, you know, the great unwashed, uh, misogynistic United States public wants to keep women down. Why do like, we hate women so much? Why do you hate women so much, Nancy Rommelman? I don't. I love women. Um, I will say that um, I have a I have a Instagram follower who uh, linked me a little video this morning, which I sent to you, um, which was Johnny 
Depp's attorney. Um, going Camille Vasquez. The, yep. Going through the timeline of, um, of, uh, of Amber Heard's black eye. Uh, you're going to talk more in depth with it, but I'm just going to give you a little uh, preamble here. So it's, you know, it's like six, it's, it's, it's six days after he's been out of the country. She shows up with this black eye and his court and TMZ and Sarah can fill you in on that. But I will just say one thing and I want your opinion. And I actually love our, our listeners opinions to this. So if she faked this with a bruise kit or whatever it was and and wanted it seen by the media that she had a bruise on her face that she was going to claim was from her husband who's now i guess in Europe uh on a on a job if she's she, on tour with his band right if if she fabricated this in order to uh, implicate him in order to make herself look like a victim, in order to gain sympathy, in order to, you know, just have just have people on her side. If this proves to be untrue, okay, this none of this is true. This is a fabrication on her part. And she has now reported this as a crime and gotten herself a restraining order. Has she committed a crime? Is my question. Sure. I mean, I mean I'm, I, not, I'm not answering your question. I'm saying, yes, that is the question. That's another question. We Okay, I'm going to just break here for one second, and then we'll go back to Sarah Hepla. Um, I want to say, I think we have the best listeners because they are being so vocal with us in the comments. When we have a question, they answer it. If they like it, they tell us. If they want to see something different, they tell us. Keep it coming, guys. We love it. We are going to have a special episode soon. I put it in the last show notes. I'll put them in this one where we where we answer listener mail. But I really love it. It feels like a little community and it's, it's very cool. So if somebody does know the answer to that, um, if you report, if you, it's got to be, if you make a false report. No, of course it's a crime. Of, of course crime, it's a crime. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not convinced it's false. Well, okay, let's go. Why don't you, because you know, I sent you the video and you know the players a lot better and the timeline better. Why don't we tell listeners what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about here? The video that you sent me was from Camille Vasquez's closing statements in the trial of Debbie Heard. It happened on Friday. It is now Tuesday after Memorial Day, and they the, the jury is now in deliberations. We don't know when the verdict is going to come back. There's a lot of excitement that it's going to happen today. I have no reason to believe that will happen, but who knows? This is a trial where it's been a sort of expect the unexpected situation. We don't know what's going to happen. One thing to remember, this trial is not about that restraining order. This trial no. is not about whether uh, who did what first. This is a trial about defamation. This is a trial where Johnny Depp sued his ex-wife Amber Heard over a 2018 op-ed. There were three points of contention that were read by the judge on the last day before closing arguments. One of the things that struck me as she was reading these three statements, ones like I survived, you know, I, I became, I spoke out for domestic abuse and I faced the culture's wrath. One is the headline, you know, I, I was a sexual abuse survivor, yada, yada, yada. One of the things that struck me as she was reading that was how little I had learned about defamation during this six week ordeal. For huh. all the things that we learned about, very little of it was the sort of squishy gray area of defamation, which is something I know a little bit about because I was an editor at an online magazine where I had to be on guard for defamation. We had a lawyer 
that would uh, look over my personal essay section, you know, pieces for potential potential libel. And so, you know, defamation is it's a it's a it's something that dates back to Roman law. But, you know, it's kind of like every culture works it out differently. And it's this place where freedom of speech kind of collides with the right to privacy or the right to to your reputation. The 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 bar is much higher for celebrities for various reasons. Right, right. So we have not heard really anything about that. The other thing we haven't heard much about that I think is also central to this case is whether emotional abuse would constitute being the victim of domestic abuse. Well, In other who, words, who decides? Who okay. decides? Right. And you know when you do closing arguments, one of the things that you can do is play a little bit fast and loose with some of the facts. And I saw both sides doing that in their closing arguments. And I, in fact, texted you on Friday after the closing arguments because I found them deeply depressing. And one of the reasons I found them deeply depressing was that it felt like watching two sides of the culture war argue on Twitter and each of them completely disregarding the good points of the other side, each of them overstating the case of harms and yada, 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 and no one really having the full story. And my sinking feeling of despair that this is just fucking lost. I mean, look, Camille Vasquez is a badass who's become a star through her cross-examination of Amber Heard. She is a young, very attractive lawyer from California. She was wearing a awesome sort of like A-crew dress for those closing arguments. She always wears spike heels. She's basically setting up a very compelling narrative that six years to the day ago, Amber Heard walked into a court and filed a fake testimony. She, fa- you know, she made up this bruise on her face. I just don't think that it's that strong. I don't think this is completely fabricated. I have spent a lot of time listening to Amber Heard's testimony. I went back and listened to both her and Johnny again. There's a lot more to this story. I don't think this is one of those things like the usual suspects where a little piece of, you know, evidence kind of like shocks the whole system into in into place. And suddenly we realize that the villain is the victim or the victim is the villain or whatever. It's not it's not that. But this way of presenting the story as though it is, which I see both sides doing, I see doing them doing this in the court. I see people doing this on the court of public opinion on Twitter. I see people doing this in the media um, where the YouTubers are like, it's obviously Johnny. And the legacy media is like, why won't you believe Amber? And I swear to God, I just feel like I want to scream because nobody has a story that feels integrated, that feels integrated and worthy of this complicated narrative. And maybe you just can't do that in court. 
I think you can't. I think you can maybe write it. Well, I'm working on my essay. I spent a lot of the weekend working on it. I'm very obsessed with this essay right now, and it's a little bit long, and it's going to get longer. And all I can hope is that the trial takes, the jurors take a little while to deliberate because I want my piece to come out when the jury verdict does. And so I need a little bit more time in the week. So I'm asking them. For for our sake. Oh, so uh, a couple yeah. of things on that. Um, three things, actually. So the first is that um, Sarah and I have talked about like when the verdict does drop, um, maybe having a little open Zoom for our paid subscribers um, or an AMA so that people can, so we can discuss it. I think mm -hmm. people might might like that. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two, I'm thinking, are you planning to run your, um, your, uh, Depp Heard essay here on Smoke em If You Got Them, Sarah, which yes, by me. the way is the name of this podcast. Um, sorry. Oh yeah. What's our podcast called? Yo, it's called Smoke em If You Got Them. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we'll run we're that here. We're the worst. We're the worst. We're the absolute worst. <laughs> at self-IDing. Um, Ugh. and then a quick question about something else. And you guys, again, I, I love our listeners. They tell us like it is, you know, Depp Heard has been a just national story. And as we we started this out, sort of a perhaps a referendum on Me Too, a lot of other stuff. So obviously it's grabbed the national attention. I'm I'm jetting off to a different story, which is sort of a national story, which is the um which is the recall election of um of uh of San Francisco district attorney uh, Chesa Boudin. If you don't know who he is, he is the child of two weather underground, the the 1970s revolutionary student group trying to overthrow the government. Uh, two, his two parents were sent to jail for murder. They were involved in the robbery of a Brinks truck. They were the getaway drivers. They did not fire the guns, but they went to prison. Um, and then he was adopted by two other uh, sort of like the heads of the weather underground, which was Bernardine Dorn and Bill Ayers, and he was raised by them. So at one point, all four of his parents were on FBI most Wild. wanted lists. Wild. Anyway, I am going out there. I've made already a ton of connections with people I'm going to speak to. A lot who are like absolutely adamant that they got to get this guy out of there. And others who are like, no, Nancy, listen, the reason people are like this is because the earth is continuing to turn. We're in a slightly different place than we were in summer 2020 when he started his tenure where everybody yeah. wanted these ideals. And now we see it in action. They're not happy. In it. And it's really more sensibility than data driven. But of course, people's sensibilities sway elections, right? We know that. Anyway, would you imagine that, Sarah? Um, I'm I'm just curious, and you can let me know because I'm probably going to do it anyway. Um, I may do. I mean, I'm obviously going to be doing some writing, and I'm just wondering if you want me to post some of it here, if that's interesting to you. Not as interesting, maybe, as Johnny and Amber, but an interesting story nonetheless. And I'm I'm wondering if our smoking listeners would be interested in reading that. So, well, think, this Mocum reader would be very interested in reading okay. that. I would love you to cover that. Um, I think that's a fascinating story. I didn't know anything about this guy. I do have a question, though, and maybe you can address it later. And <clears throat> But, you know, I have some ancillary reporting to this because I followed the Brock Turner case, which takes place in Palo Alto. One of the things that happens in the wake of that is that the judge is recalled. And when I spoke to the former California Supreme Court judge, LaDoris Cordell, about that recall, which she fought against, excuse me, <clears throat> one of the things she said was, you know, she had no stake in the Brock Turner case. The Brock Turner case was an incendiary uh, Kill them again that, quickly. 
came out of uh, a Stanford swimmer who was accused of assaulting uh, a woman named, who later identified herself as Chanel Miller. She wrote a victim statement that was published in BuzzFeed and went super viral, 16, 20 million reads, uh, later became a sensational book. I think it's becoming a movie. Anyway, um, the judge, Aaron Persky, who had only had only sentenced what the probation officer suggested and was known as a progressive judge, was recalled. And Lodoris Cordell, who I spoke to, uh, was like, I was so against that because you're going to start seeing recalls again and again and again. And she said there had been four different, I, it's been a while since I've spoken to Lodoris, but I, I, and I, by the way, I should call her Justice Cordell. I, I am not like no, pleased with her, her name. <laughs> she is, she deserves the honor of, of being called Justice Cordell. Um, she pointed out to me that, uh, this was a slippery slope and that we were going to start seeing people recalled. And so it's interesting to me that the Chessa, two years after starting there, well, is under so this sort of scrutiny. I don't know if it's um, the California Constitution or the Constitution, the, the, the California Legal Code, but they've had the recall since, I think, at least 1911. And it's something that they use with some frequency. I mean, we saw the governor was up for recall, uh, was it earlier this year or last year? And he, right. he retained his seat. And this is the second time, actually, that they've tried to to recall Chesa Boudin. Apparently, the day after he won, someone like started a, you know, recall chessa.org or something like that URL, which is not, which is not live anymore. But there was a, there was another, um, um, recall effort begun, I think by a failed, failed gubernatorial or mayoral candidate, um, for San Francisco couldn't get enough signatures, but he's still sort of vocal. Um, this one was started by several different factions. Um, but one of the big kind of pushes behind it is that a lot of the assistant district attorneys working under Boudin when he came in on a platform of restorative justice, of, you know, re um, revoking bail, would just a lot of ideas that he wanted to make it more fair for the prisoners. Um, they they resigned. I mean, I don't know how many, but it was a bunch. And I listened to a very interesting debate yesterday between um, between one of them and and Laura Bazelon, who is actually in the pro uh, pro Chessa camp. I'm actually going to talk with her later oh, today. And also she's see great. And San Francisco, oh, she's great. Oh man, she had. A, I'm going to put her link to when she was on the fifth column. She was just mm -hmm. amazing. Um, but she's she's pro Chessa Boudin. But one thing that the 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 woman um, who was who one of the uh, the uh, ADAs who'd resigned said, she's like, look, you have public defenders, and the public defender's job is to do every single thing they can to protect their client. So, okay, Sarah Heppala, you you hit someone with a car and you kill them. Well, the public defender's job is to make sure that you get the fairest shake possible and the least right. sentence possible. The district attorney's job right. is to see that justice is done. And what people's feelings are, are that basically... Chesa Boudin, who used to be a public defender in San Francisco, mm. is still acting as a public defender. So now there's redundancy in the system. Got and it. there are people who are not getting, they are not 
getting the sort of sentences they deserve if they're getting them at all. Now, Laura mm. Bazelon's contention in this past debate was, no, 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 listen, the DA is working for the entire community. The DA has to make sure we have a system that works for everybody. It's not that he or she is just against um, the prisoner. But if you look at some stats, there is some sort of disturbing things in there. You know, people that are like, uh, there. one case they were talking about, a six-year-old was just randomly shot. While he, mm. and killed while he was do, setting off fireworks with his father. Mm. And he got, he was six and he got less time than the kid had been on earth. And the father mm. was like, I feel like I didn't want this guy to go to jail for the rest of his life, but I feel like under six years is too little. And yeah. anyway, it's an interesting story. There's a lot of interesting people involved and um, I'll re- be reporting on that for you. Speaking of the legal system and how, and how, you know, public defense and and crime and all these things work together. Um, I watched Goodfellas this weekend. Oh, you mean with the guy that did the Chantix commercial? Yeah! Uh, <laughs> You're really impression. Oh, man. it's Okay, before we get into Goodfellas, I got to just say, so Kyle Dunnigan, who is a unbelievably funny comedian, and he does, what's that called? That thing, face, face shifting or whatever it is. He did so... We all know Ray Liotta, R.I.P. Ray Liotta, is just so fantastic. He died last week. Is it Liotta or Liotta? I I don't know. Liotta? Liotta? Ray Liotta? I think Liotta. Yo, Liotta. I'm going to go with Liotta. That does sound more Italian. Yo, it does. So um, I'm going to stop. I'm going to talk now just for the hell of it. Oh, I love it. This is hot. Keep doing it. I'm going to talk in my New York accent. So anyway, (laughs) after Ray Liotta dies, right? Um, he, you know, Kyle Dunnigan, like the next day, he's got this thing up, like this comedy thing. It's for like, uh, Ray Liotta for Chantix. I don't know if people remember, there was this Chantix. It's like a stop smoking pill or a tablet or something. I don't know. And Ray Liotta's like doing the thing. He's like, he really did do this. He did this like, you know, back in the eighties, I don't know, nineties. So that's like, and it was so funny. And I'm like, man, Kyle Dunnigan, he's so freaking fast. But in fact, Matt Welch told me that he'd done it a while ago. But it is, it's super fast. We'll put a link to it. It's so, so, so funny. I watched it like five times. Anyway, I sent it to you. And you sent you were... it to me. And I was like, is this real? Like, I actually was so confused because the beginning of it, I was like, this actually is totally convincing. Now, towards the end, he starts doing basically lines from Goodfellas. And yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, okay, this is not real. But in the beginning, I was like, oh, wow, Ray Liotta did a Shantix commercial. <laughs> like it reminded me. It reminded me of the outtakes we had done from the Orson Welles, Ernest and Julio Gallo, except that's not the name of it. It's Paul Masson. But um <laughs> remember where he's just I he's do. like oh, he's hammered. God. He's, he's hammered and he's like the French. What am I to say here? And then like he goes to touch the bottle, he like smacks it with his hands. Yeah. The other actors are like, but Oh my god. That's almost that's what it reminded me of. And I thought, oh wow, you know, this is really weird. And then of course it was not, it was it was this other the whatever face shifting, face changing. It's what do got you a call name. That? I don't know. They like they, it's face 
it's like you put the face of like he's done Kyle Dunnigan. Oh my god, he did one like the fresh. It's based on the first Prince of Bel Air, but it's Biden in a diaper, and it's just it's just and oh my god, it's it's so funny. It, they you should call it Face Off in honor of the classic Nick Cage John Travolta movie Face Off, where they yeah. change faces. Yeah, I, uh, I I I don't know if I watched that or right or not, but I'm just getting like a creepy skin feeling just thinking about it. So it's go such a talk, good movie. Talk but about, anyway. Um, Goodfellas, because I have some things to say about that, too. Goodfellas is one of my top five favorite movies, and the only one that would be in the top five that has such little, like, emotional valence, you know? Like, all my other favorite movies are, like, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Magnolia and, like, all these sort of, like, deep emotional movies. And Goodfellas is the only one that is just, like, it's just a fucking slam dunk of a movie and it's a ride man it's such a ride to god i cannot for years when i was living in new york and i had actual cable and a drinking problem and i would be you know like going through and scrolling through and and i would stumble across it back in the days when you'd stumble across things on on cable i could not see one minute of that movie without having to sit down and watch the rest of it it was just like oh yeah i've been hit by I've been hit. And now I'm going to have to sit here and watch the rest of it. I think the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes of that movie, beginning with as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Mm -hmm. I think it is possibly the best opening in cinema. If it's not, I want someone to tell me what is. I, I would agree with you. And also the shot. When he's walking Lorraine Bracco, she's like, I don't know what to think. He just like knew all these guys like and they would they get out of the car and they're going to the nightclub and they're going downstairs. They're going through the kitchen and they're going and they're setting up the chairs. This is one shot, guys. This so is that's the classic lipping shot. Dolly sweeping, uh, sweeping shot of the Copacabana, the, the Copacabana Club. Oh, is that and what it is? I didn't know what the I club think was. So, but, yeah, I but think is so. Copacabana was in New York. What am I, what am I, why am I so I think stupid? so, yeah. They're, they're, those are all the supper clubs, the 50s supper yeah. clubs. Yeah, Well, this The Versailles was... and the Copacabana. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, well, I, okay, so I had seen, I'd probably seen Goodfellas four times before and absolutely, absolutely loved it. Oh my God, and Joe Pesci at the table. Ma, I gotta buy this knife. You know, I gotta, the D and he got stuck. I gotta get his little paw out of the, oh my God. God. And of course, that's Martin Scorsese's real mother, who's always played little roles. And it's just it's just beautiful. Everything is beautiful about that movie. But then a couple months ago, Reason Magazine asked me to write about the Son of Sam laws, um, which are they're tried. The state of New York passed a law after Son of Sam David Berkowitz, who was the Son of Sam killer, which I actually remember because I was alive in the in the mid seventies. And where we go out to play, my mother would take my hair and pin it up because it was rumored that he was killing girls with long hair. Um, in any case, he was captured wow. and they like pushed through this law super fast saying, no, he can't make any money on his crimes, right? So he can't like sell his story to a, you know, a newspaper writer or to the movies or anything, which he didn't try to do. But they, um, they, they had that law. And then Simon & Schuster, which published the book Goodfellas, which is by Wise guy. Nick Nick, wise guy, right. Wise guy by Nick Pelleggi, Pelleggi. Um, the, the, the publisher sued and said, this, this law is too broad and we are allowed to pay, uh, what we paid to, uh, 
what what's the character's name and the real guy the Henry real, Hill the, Henry Hill um, and they won and they struck it down and the law got changed in any case I wrote a little piece for reason about this so I read the book which I'd never read and then I watched the movie for the fifth time and I got to tell you Sarah Hepla I could watch it again next month Oh, I, I could watch it again tonight. Everything I can about fucking it. watch it again tonight. <laughs> I've been thinking about why that movie works so much. One of the interesting things I read years ago in an interview with the author David Lipsky, of all people, who was talking yeah, yeah. about uh, David Foster Wallace with a female writer, and he mentions the movie Goodfellas, and she says to him, you know, women don't like that movie. And he says, what, what do you mean? And she says, no, they don't like it. And he goes, none of them? And she goes, no. And he goes, what about? And she's like, no. This is my memory of how this conversation goes. Wait. I was shocked because it was the first time I had heard introduced an idea that was, and and she, I think she's making the parallel that a lot of men really only like David Wallace, which I didn't know either. I didn't know until I became part of the toxic masculinity that I was a perpetrator of some of these pop culture ideas that to me, it was sort of like a genderless and unassailable thing that they were brilliant pieces of art. In in other words, that I loved Infinite Jest and that I loved Goodfellas. I didn't know that they were part of this like Women don't like Goodfellas. I don't, you know, I don't think there's a lot of science behind this idea. But I will say that over the years, I have heard many women deride the gangster genre, much like they can sometimes deride like sports or the the superhero genre, so especially science fiction, like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. As largely male concerned, Goodfellas is a movie that is mostly about with men. It is a masculine fantasy. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, I, you know, I, I was dating a guy once, and I saw Goodfellas on his um, shelf, and I was like, "Oh, I love Goodfellas," and he was like, "Right, because you're awesome." And I was like, "What do, do people not like?" What? Goodfellas. And he was like, I don't know how many women like that movie. So anyway, you and I, while we love women, are often, you know, we discover that we are not in fact necessarily the best representatives. I would love to hear from women in our audience whether they love this movie or not. My mother, my poor dear mother, actually nearly fainted watching Goodfellas and had to leave. Um, oh, because the violence, violence. Yeah, yeah. Okay, is well, okay. so shocking. It is so shocking and in your face. And I think if you're going to levy critiques against Goodfellas, and you can make quite a number of them, one of them is the extent to which shocking, senseless, disgusting violence is so fucking cool because it is played to an amazing soundtrack. soundtrack. I don't think any filmmaker uses music better than Martin Scorsese and the 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 freeze frames of it, the it's, fucking the glamour of it. I remember reading uh, recently um, somebody asking about real life gangsters and whether or not they saw themselves in these movies and they were like, yeah, but they weren't nearly as cool. Like even or- real gangsters who were fucking you know real wise guys that weren't nearly as cool as Ray Liotta Joe Pesci and Bobby De Niro so I I you know I hear a lot of these things like oh women don't like this like I I don't I don't I really would love to know like why if 
Oh, all women don't like this. Okay. That's, tell well, me women why. Women don't like baseball. Don't, no, that's not true. I'm going to a baseball game tomorrow night. That means okay. you're not a woman. I've just proven well, it. Well, we know that. Okay. Well, that's been established a long time ago. Um, I have a number of female friends that love baseball, but it is true in large part that women are not into baseball. It is so much a dude sport. Okay. I, this is another conversation, but it, and I, I don't really have much to say to except that I enjoy it. Um, and I love basketball. Okay. So women like basketball more. I, I was always a beer drinker too. And I was repeatedly told that women don't drink beer, you know, so you're talking about broad demographics. I don't drink beer. beer. That's because you're a woman. I, I probably drink one beer a year, like when we're having Mexican food somewhere, and it's just like, oh, this seems like a good idea, but I don't like it. I don't like the way it tastes. So it's yeah, not, that's very it's that's not, very classic. Women yeah. don't like the way it tastes, which is why yeah. marketing that why wine was marketed to women because women really liked wine. They're the ones that wine. bust open wine. That, uh, no, W Y. It's Y N E, <laughs> not W H I N E. Um, wait, okay, I want to get back to Goodfellas for a second. Like, oh my God, I, this, so is, say. Let's this go. is this is inexplicable to me. Uh that I mean, I could understand not liking the violence. I actually have a friend, Scott Ross, he does Paloma Media with us in London. He, if something's like too violent or too graphic, he actually faints and he's like six foot four and he's yeah. had to like leave theaters as he's like falling down because he can't like he can't actually metabolize this emotionally. Um, I can understand maybe if women are a little more squeamish about violence than men are. I'm, mm-hmm. I'd be, I actually don't know. My father could not take scary movies. Like we would go to scary movies when I was a kid and he's like, do you want to leave? Is it, do you want to leave? I'm like, no, I'm having a great time. He's like, but are you sure? So I don't know that this holds true, but let's just say it does. You're going to discount the entire movie because there's 17 minutes of violence. This is art this movie is art unbelievable and i'm sorry for her that she doesn't like it but she's not allowed to like it but i've got two more things to say one my mom are we talking about my mom right now no just talking about the woman that said uh you were listening to the david foster wallace oh that woman that said no women like it yeah no No, my mom's just like she's just sweet she can't take it and that's fine okay so then uh there's a, a a movie also with Robert De Niro called Ronin. Okay, yeah. Ronin is. I saw this movie with my husband. He's like, "Oh, it's stank." I was like, "I love that movie." And then I watched it again. And then I had a friend, Allison, and her husband's like, "God, that movie stank." And she's like, "I love that movie." And all that movie is is car chases and. Sp- Pushing around. It's exactly the kind of movie like a dude is supposed to like, but right. women love it. So I'm wondering, I should do a poll. Women or men, who likes Ronin? And then That's the last thing I'll say about this is years ago, probably on Facebook, God help me, um, but it might have been Goodreads. I don't know. Someplace like 10 or 12 years ago, I was writing some of my favorite books. And one was, um, I wrote the book Wanderer by Sterling Hayden, the actor. And I got a private message from the actor Jim Beaver. I'll put a link to him to him here. You're going to recognize him even if you don't know his name. I knew him very well from Deadwood. He's like, hi, you don't know me, but that is also one of my favorite books. And I'm very, very surprised to hear that a woman likes it. And I was like, huh, okay. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I really responded to the book. So anyway, I'll put a link to that book to, here too. I think we've talked about it um, once before. Anyway. Um, so I gave some thought to why Goodfellas is such a compelling story. And I think that it's one of these movies that is a cautionary tale that is also a masculine fantasy. 
So that it serves both at once, you know, that like we know that Henry Hill is going down the dark path, but there is a bloodlust inside of us that's sort of like, but what would happen if we went down the dark path? And so you can experience it both as, you know, don't do this, but also fucking do this thing. And I also think that the women play such an interesting role in this film now, if I have a critique of any actor in this film, it does happen to be Lorraine Bracco. I have Lorraine Bracco problems. I had them during Sopranos as well. It's difficult to distinguish what part of that is my annoyance with her character and my annoyance with her sometimes over-the-top portrayals. Um, she, though, I think one of the most riveting moments of this movie for me is when we pivot into her voiceover. You've already alluded to it. There is a moment when the story that has been being told that is in control by Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta, is suddenly replaced by a female voice. And we hear from Karen, his soon-to-be wife. I love this moment. This is such a little sleight of hand that gooses you. It's like, wait a minute, we're going to hear from somebody else. Somebody else just came alive. My question to you is somebody that has read Wise Guy. I've always wondered, is this a trick that the book does as well? Yes. Yes. So part of the reason why I think the Son of Sam law was called into question is because Pelleggi's writing the book, of course, um, but there was a lot of first person from Karen and and from Henry Hill. Uh. A lot. Like, it's told in their voices. I, too, loved that scene when she's like, and he took me to dinner and he just sat there. I can't do her accent, but it was it was great. And then when she storms out of the car, I mean, she is just a force. And um, I think this movie, and I don't mean this in the lovey-dovey sense, it's very romantic in terms of, like, what you're saying. Like, this could happen. Look at this crazy thing, this crazy life that, you know, they could be part of. And, um... It, it is very and- it is very romantic. It has a lot of romantic music as well. I mean, you get swept up into the romance of this lifestyle, which is really, really the American dream, which is the idea of sort of um, rising up from nothing to have something, um, which a lot of Italian immigrants that had joined the mob were trying to do through their own system of sort of protection, protection and government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it becomes quite dark. And one of the things that is very depressing about it is how the women all just seem trapped and they are strong and powerless at the same time. They are definitely not agents of change. You know, Karen, the character is one of the more difficult characters because much like Edie Falco, who played Carmela in The Sopranos, she is hooked on the stuff. She's hooked on the yeah. stuff that is the um, the material goods that this life is providing her. There's a moment that he is, Henry Hill has like, you know, girlfriends and they're becoming sort of increasingly more drug addled. And, you know, there's one that's played by Dave, Debbie Mazur, who I just, I love Debbie Mazur. She's great. She's just like, you see her in a movie and you're just like, God, that girl, like she she's is just more, from around more. the block, yeah. you know, yeah. like I yeah, just yeah, love yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she's making cocaine and he's got, and he says like, all I had to do was tell Sandy every once in a while that I loved her. That's and right. I feel so fucking impugned and and implicated by this line because the immediate thought in my head is like 
who the fuck did that to me? You know, like how many lines, how many Henry Hills have I fallen for? And when you get the sense that like, God damn, women really are an easy mark. All you have to do is tell her every once in a while that you love her. See, again, I'm the dude in this situation. I'm just like, I don't, I got to tell you, I don't, I I don't know if I've ever uh, been in that particular paradigm to think the no i don't think i don't think i've ever been with somebody that said that they loved me in order to keep me doing their cocaine i think (laughs) that i have been in situations or giving you their cocaine or whatever men knew that they could they could paper over their either discretions or disappearances or failures to text, et cetera, et cetera, by being charming because I fall for charming men. You know why I think I've just occurring to me why I like can't add to these things a lot of time because my, almost my entire adult life has been spent with two men. Yeah. Okay. Like I don't like just don't have these other people that like fell in between boyfriends. I mean, I've had a couple of like that were weird, but not, but I'm going to just dog like here to tell a little cocaine New York mafia story because Please. why not? Okay. So uh, I, I say, think I said in the last podcast, I was like, I left school at 14. I was hanging out on the street and this one girl I was hanging out with Lorraine, her mother was Italian from Italy and lived in, in an apartment on the Montague Street that she'd call out the window, Lorena, Lorena, come home. And she also was very, very concerned that that we were going to be good girls, right? So she would like sit and have a glass of wine on the street on Montague Street because it was late 70s and you could do that. And she would come and she would like touch our budding bodies and be like, oh, you good, good girls. And no oars, meaning no horse. Anyway, Lorraine, meanwhile, there's a restaurant on the corner. It's been taken over it literally by the mafioso, right? And there's this guy, Umberto. Umberto is a big, fat, polyester-wearing, Italian, very low-level mafioso dude who, like, lived with his wife and kids out in Bay Ridge, but I think he was fucking Lorraine, okay? She was, like, 15 or something like that. So... She, he had, of course, a lavender Cadillac because, of course, he did. Of course, and, he um, did. And we would, um, maybe we were 16, 15, 16, I don't know. So he would take us sometimes, like, driving around in his Cadillac because I, I was out of school and nothing else to do. And um, he would, like, dole out these tiny, tiny, tiny little silver spoonfuls of cocaine. Remember, it used to come in, like, the little b- brown glass canister with, like, then the top had, like, this little tiny spoonful embedded in the top and it was just and he was like super stingy with it i'm like god there's nothing good about this guy anyway this is the story i wanted to tell one night it's i don't know it's a week night it's hot it's summertime and uh he drives us to little italy which i live right near now and he drives us to this this cafe called cafe luna i think that's what it was called and we go in it's kind of empty but there's like Four or five guys, four or five guys like you would see in Goodfellas, right? And they're sitting in a booth. And Umberto walks in with us. We're like 15 wearing halter tops. And we could tell immediately that they didn't respect Umberto. Like they didn't like him, but they liked us. And they, they let us sit down. They ordered us scungili and calamari. And we talked to them. And you girls, you're so beautiful and all this. And then we left and we went home. Nothing happened. But anyway, yeah. That's a true story. I want to do a whole episode (laughs) devoted to your 
formative years in in New York because I well, love these stories so much. Well, guys, I did. She actually, I didn't tee her up to do this, but there's you go over to Amazon. I'll put a link here. There's something called the Queens of Montague Street. It's like a 25 page memoir I wrote. I initially sent it to the New Yorker a number of years ago after I wrote it, and they were like, "Oh, this is interesting," but no. So I published it on. I was at a little at the time. My sister and I had a little uh, a little publishing company, and we put it. It's just available on Kindle. It's like. A dollar ninety nine or something like that, and get the whole story. So, okay, and I, I think well, that story's in there. I think that I'll read in there. that, but I also want to. I will have follow up questions. So, how about this? Sure. I'll read that, and then we'll do an. Sure. A, an I'll do an interview with the author. So, um, I just want you. That you want me to talk like the whole time, like this? Oh, fuck yes! <laughs> By the way, uh, I've never done cocaine. Well, I'm glad, and I will. I just want to say, I don't know why it matters to me. I haven't done drugs in decades, and I'll never do another drug as long as I live. I mean, I have like, I'm actually, I, people can do what they want. It's probably a better idea to make things legal so that we have systems that develop in order to help people as opposed to having this terrible underground and people dying. It's it's horrible and horrific. I will never in my life do another drug under any circumstances, and I haven't in 30 years. Um, except for I was writing about the marijuana industry that was coming up 10 years ago oh, in, sure. in, in Portland. I was doing an article and she gave me some like, a gummy or something. So I did that and it was, I hated it in any way. Um, but I did as a kid on the streets. Yeah, we did. I mean, we smoked a lot of pot. Um, I dropped acid a few times. We did some weird, I did a little Coke when I was older, but I'm very lucky in that I never, I never like nothing ever became a problem. You know, it was like right. this thing that you did. And then like, by the time, uh, sorry, by the time I was like having a child, I was like, I had been so, I'd been done with drugs and yeah, I mean, no. Anyway. Cares, so we but. started talking about Goodfellas for a very specific reason, which is that the star, Ray Liotta, died at 67. Yeah. And he in sleep, is right? in a sleep. Yeah. He really owns this film, which, I mean, belongs to many other people. So that's a that's a that's a maybe an overstatement. But what I mean is I've never seen Ray Liotta find full blossom in the movies in the way that he does in this film. Now, our listeners suggested that we watch a movie called Something Wild. It's a Jonathan Demme movie. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the men in this movie because I'm so fascinated by them. In the in the obituary, in the Times that I read for Ray Liotta, he was quoted talking about how difficult this role was. He had to span 20, 30 years and so many different moods. I mean, there's scenes where he's tender, there's scenes where he's violent, there's scenes where he's drug-addled, there's scenes where he's not. I mean, then these were happening in the space of days because movies don't get filmed sure. in chronological order. And it's a very tall order. You know, by the time he's at the end of that movie, I mean, he's just pale and sweaty. And I mean, you just absolutely believe this sort of like drug-induced paranoia has taken hold of this person. He's sort of constantly wild-eyed. Um, I had a question for you. Do you think Ray Liotta is sexy in this movie? Yes. I did not even have to. Um, there's, no, there's no qualifying about that. What he is sexy about him? His, um, the way he, the way he, when he's listening um, and the way his face, like he's listening to, by the way, we should say Paul Sorvino turns in an unbelievable performance in this movie, the actor. Polly. Paul Sorvino. Um he he like there's times like remember at the end when uh when he's lying to Polly when he's yeah. like he's like oh yeah no no he's got this way of he's listening 
but he's also thinking at the same time and you see it in his eyes. You see this dynamism. He also happens to me to just be like a kind of a cute guy. He's got that kind of, I mean, I get, obviously, he's, uh, Liotta is, is Italian, but he also has got some, a bit of that, like, well, you know, the Irish and the Italians always marry each other. That's what I was told when I was growing up. My dad grew up an Italian kid in, in, the, in the West Village. And he's like, oh yeah, we would like fight the, the Irish on the next block and then we'd fight the Italians, but everybody wind, they all wound up marrying each other, the Irish That's and funny. the Italians. But he, he's got to me a little bit of that sort of um, Irish eyes are smiling kind of well, thing. Well, he played Frank Sinatra. Oh, there. I did want to say one thing, and I don't remember what movie it was, but um, this was sometime after Goodfellas. And, you know, he really was just put on this, you know, not a pedestal after Goodfellas, but I was super revered. But he did some movie that he was like on a plane, some like kind of plane disaster, not snakes on a plane, but maybe, I don't know, some plane movie. And the New York Times wrote... Ray Liotta in a career-destroying performance. Oh, no. I've, ne- I've never forgotten that line. I don't remember what movie it was. We'll look it up maybe and find they it. Might have, but, they um, might have been right because I haven't seen him in years, decades. Um, except for the Tantix commercial. Um, what? A, so did you think Ray Liotta is sexy in this movie? I do. He has an animal energy. There's a moment where he's like, he's like at his girlfriend's place and he's you know, they're showing around this garish, you know, like 70s excess of a pad. It's just like this crazy, ridiculous design and like mirrors over the bed and shit like that. Oh, it's insane. And he he tackles her on the bed and she, you know, jokingly uh, giggles and all her friends are watching and sort of like, wow. And Debbie Mazur is there. And the girlfriend leaves the room, but Henry Hill stalks her, the Debbie Mazur character, out with this, like, your next look. That's right. And And it is so hot. And that is the moment where I have to go, oh, God, Sarah, you really are just, like, hopelessly drawn to the wrong men. (laughs) Because you're supposed to be drawn to him. You're supposed to be. You're supposed to be. You're supposed to be. But anyway, it was incredibly hot. But I will tell you, who I am really hot for in that movie. And I feel like his sexiness is just so under-discussed in the culture. And I spent a little time over the weekend thinking about it. Do you want to guess? Yeah. Well, I, it's got to be De Niro. It's Unless De Niro. you say, of course it is. But the, the Robert De Niro is always sexy. Like, come on. No, people He's don't talk sec- about They don't oh, talk about ne- this enough. Well, they don't this is, well, talk about ne- it enough episode will be or this one will be called robert de niro is sexy full stop jesus christ this man always sexy he's always sexy and he's always sexy the little dot the little mole on his cheek and the the smile and i think he's gorgeous but he also happens to be he just happens to be one of the best actors of his generation uh, and he sorry. plays these fucking sociopaths. He starred in Ronin, by the way. I know he did. I'm just, if that has any. I know to do he with did. And, and you know, I just, I don't know. It's just like, maybe it's because he doesn't play a lot of leading men characters. He played one in like with Meryl Streep and Falling in Love. That's a romantic movie that he did, but he doesn't tend to do, he, do, he tends to do a lot of sort of like dirty gangster sociopath. You know, he really, he, he hits his stride with the whole gangster era He's you know done some comedy though didn't he do like the meet the analyze this parents or what, I mean, I meet the parents that's sort analyze of like it. his goofy making fun of his own sociopathic gangster persona mm. phase but mm. because he doesn't ever really 
go into the leading man category. He's really a character actor, one of the greats of his time, if not the best of his time, you know, who's known for these roles in Taxi Driver and and Raging Bull. Oh, my God, Raging Bull. You know what I I've mean, never seen? I've never seen Down These Mean Streets. It's just called Mean Streets. Is it? Yeah. Oh, Mean Streets. Okay, Down These Mean Streets is a book. Right okay. by Peary Thomas. I don't know. Sorry. Oh, Mean Streets. I well, I I've never seen. It sound me. like some I, Bruce Springsteen I, I, song that I've you were quoting me. I've never seen. I've never seen Mean Streets either. So there we mean go. Mean Streets is, um, you know, it's an early film, and it's not. I mean, you can definitely see like the technique that Scorsese is going to hone, but in terms of the narrative, it's not really packing the punch that the later the later ones would do. I have always felt that all his little tricks and such find their greatest expression in Goodfellas. And that's okay. why it is the the peak movie of his career, even though he's done many other interesting films, but none of them have the sort of electricity of that movie. Um, you know, what else was I going to say about Goodfellas? I may be done, but, uh, oh, I don't know. I suddenly, uh, after the movie was done, I was like, what do I think about Henry Hill rolling on all these people? I'm kind of against it. I never really thought about the fact that he does that. It really upset me at the end of this. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think they made the build proper. They made you kind of hope that he was going to save his own skin as opposed to go down. I mean, we just see all those other people shot. It's like, is that what we want? I don't know. I... I, I I just want to watch it again. I also want to see, you know what movie I really want to see again? And then we'll get off movies is uh, Chinatown. I haven't watched that. In a oh, long yeah, that's an interesting time. movie. Do you think De Niro yeah. is too old for me to date him? I don't know. How old is he? I guess that's up to you. I just you want a knee jerk reaction on that. Like, could if, because I don't even know if he's dating anybody. Isn't he married? He's always married. He's I don't married. Know. He's married. Robert De Niro's married. Relax. No. Relax. Lies. Lies. He hasn't been married since <laughs> Fake 88. News. Big, big news. He's 78 years old. He's three years younger than my father. It's on. It's okay. on, Robert De Niro. Okay. <laughs> okay, Sarah Hupla, this might be a short episode. Was there anything else we wanted to talk about today? Yes, I have a question for you. Yes. Did you watch the second episode of The Deep End? I didn't. And I'm going to tell you why, but I have a good excuse. I was actually just, I was really offline all weekend, like playing with a seven-year-old. Okay. Like we played backgammon and went swimming and caught turtles. And I just didn't, I just didn't watch anything except for last night, uh, getting caught up with Ricky Gervais. And this morning I, I put this on Twitter. I had my most Nancy essence of Nancy moment ever baking cookies while watching a weather underground documentary. Like I, it doesn't get any more essential than those two things. That and should be on your OnlyFans page. That's right. It's, no, but it is going to be on our page. I took a picture of the baked goods that uh, the person who won our 10th paid subscriber, who actually turned out to be the 11th, weirdly, because the, the one that won 10th, she's like, oh, I got my, my roommate bakes all the time. Give it to the next person. So we did. And I baked for that this morning. I'll put a picture of it on our show notes. But I got to say, they turned out super well. Oh, they looked so, so good. My mom yeah. the other day was like, could I be the 10th? And I was like, Mama, I... First of all, my mom is one of the early subscribers. I think she wanted to resubscribe in order to get the cookies. And I said, you know, I've got an in with the baker. And I go. might be able to secure 
cookies. I also meant to do this at the top of the episode, but I forgot to do that, which was make the pitch for um, for you guys to be paid subscribers, which a lot of you are lately, which is super satisfying because obviously that's good for us. But um, we're going to have a lot of special stuff coming up for you guys. I mean, we're already putting out a couple episodes a week. We're going to have some special things, whether it's a Zoom or an AMA. We're going to have book clubs. And some of this stuff will just be for paid. Um, so get in there and pay for a subscription. It's uh, My husband, when he had coffee shops, he used to hate, hate, hate when it's like the new year, people like, save money. Like, why spend that $350 every day in a cup of coffee? He's like, spend the goddamn $350. But that's anyway, funny. for the for the price of two cups of coffee, you can be a, a, a month. You cannot. You can be a subscriber. So go and hit that button and subscribe. Um, I want to say something about the deep end. The second episode is so okay. good. Well, I'm going to make one prediction before you talk about it. That that teal swan. We we they they foreshadowed that there is no freaking way she is going to let that guy that has stood by her for thick and thin have love. There's no way. There's no way. Am I right, Sarah Hepla? Well, that's the that is the primary narrative of the second episode oh. because his girlfriend comes to their neck of the woods and she is tested. And it is it really concerns the dynamics between these three people. It's so fascinating. One of my friends, uh, by the way, I have like three different people that have gotten hooked on this documentary because they heard us talk about it on the podcast. And so they're all talking to me about it. And they, uh, one of my friends I was talking to last night, he made the very excellent point that, you know, the, the pod that the, the show does not do the best job of making you like her in the beginning. In other words, it starts out from a dark place. You really don't Definitely. get the sense of her scope and power so that it can be unraveled over the course of a right. documentary. You know, you never get the sense of like her normalcy, for instance, in these YouTube videos that I watched. Um, the the sort of general goodwill that she could bring. It's it's always got this tainted with this dark ice queen energy. I think this is a great point. He also pointed out to me that it is only four episodes. Huh. Well, I need eight to ten. Okay. I well. never say. Uh, usually, every day, everything is too long these days. Oh, so long. You're like, you didn't need to make it a twelve part series. You could have done it in an hour. This one, change.org petition starting right now. I need this documentary to be about eight, eight episodes long because it's got way too much. They're setting up way too much. They cannot resolve it in two more episodes. I wonder if, um, I mean, they could have made it as long as they wanted with or without her cooperation, but maybe it just became sort of an untenable I mean, I'm sure you've been on those stories. You're writing a story, you're reporting it, you think it's going to roll out longer and your your subjects just dip for whatever reason or something weird happens and you have to sort of work with that or people stop I mean, talking to you. Yeah, this is something that probably was designed as a as a two-hour documentary and they thought oh. they were doing something, you know, because they started it three years ago. And it was in those three years that culture really shifted over into this docu-series Mm-hmm. idea because before then if you were a documentary filmmaker you were just making like a two-hour movie and now suddenly it's like no 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 no, we want to do like a series yeah. yeah and have people hooked on it um but but you know like i need it to be a lot longer but anyway it is a really super compelling 
a show that I think we should continue to talk about. So if you, so everybody get caught up on the deep end. I will try to watch it. It is a very, very busy couple of days for me till I take off for San Francisco, but I will try to watch it before the next time that we, um, that we tape. Is there any housekeeping we should, we should. I just want to say that we have a new, I went to our ratings page on Apple podcasts. (laughs) We have, we have a new highlighted review. You know, before it was the guy that was like, great conversations, but stop eating. And now (laughs) it's a review that says, you know, that listening to us is like eavesdropping on a great conversation. And she doesn't, or whoever he or whoever doesn't always agree with us, but that's not really the point. And I love that because this is a really important thing. I think it's important for our culture and our listeners and everything. You just, why would you always agree with us? I don't even agree with what I'm saying a quarter of the time. I'll change my mind down the road. This is so important that we understand that a healthy, you know, body politic, you don't need to be just in this constant state of everybody's wrong or I have to agree with everything they say. There are many things that, you know, you can civilly, rationally disagree with because these ideas that we're talking about are, they're worthy of that kind of multifaceted perspective. Well, we were started when we started this podcast talking about like, you know, who do you want to listen to and whose, whose opinion is valid? Okay. Is it, you know, is it the chattering class, people in New York Times, or is it the guy in Okmulgee? Now, if you're doing brain surgery, I think it's probably important that you're, you know, a brain surgeon, not not just the dude in Okmulgee, right? right. That, that's, but having an opinion about things that are going on in the culture, I don't, I don't really know that one person's, one person's can be more informed, certainly, but people are going to have them. I definitely do not want people agreeing here. That's definitely not the show I want to do. It's not the way I write. I'm going, as I said earlier in the podcast, I'm going to San Francisco. I'm talking to everybody. I'm talking to the pro-Boudin people. I'm talking to the anti-Boudin people because all of these people's opinions are valid. They are citizens of San Francisco and they have an opinion of what's going on, whether their opinion like holds water if I test it. But that's not really what I do. I let people talk and and that's what we want to do. We want to do here. Just um and and please uh complain to us. That's fine. As as my friend who has a really good uh, podcast called The History Amer- of the Americans, Jack Henneman, you should check it out if you like history at all. Um he's like, you know, send me your pats on the back and um and eruptions of outrage. It's like send it. Like we're not always gonna make you happy, but hopefully um, it's an interesting conversation. So, all you have to do is tell us that you love us, yeah. and we'll uh, forgive I, I, you. That, that's, that's for Sarah. I don't care about that. Um, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm such an easy mark. <laughs> okay, Sarah Heffla. I will see you soon. We'll see you soon, everybody. Bye. I love you, Nancy Rommelman. Love you, Sarah. Bye. Bye. 